Welcome to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from around the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. I'm Jordan Rich, Boston-based broadcaster and podcaster, and, and it's a great pleasure to work alongside Diane on this podcast. Diane, why don't you provide an introduction to today's guest and topic and then take it away. Today's guest is Boston-based criminal defense attorney Aviva Jerusalem, a friend and colleague who I met while working at the courthouse in Boston. Today's topic is confirmation bias. When Aviva initially introduced this concept to me, I was so sure I had never heard of it. But when she began to explain exactly what it was, I had an aha moment and instantly understood, having been guilty of confirmation bias many times in my life. It's something that's sewn into the fabric of the human condition, and when it is used in a legal setting, it is particularly dangerous. This is the second time Aviva has been a guest on All Rise, and I consider her an asset to this podcast. So back by popular demand, please enjoy attorney Aviva Jerusalem. Hi, Aviva. Hi, Diane. How are you? Um, well, welcome back. So glad you, you can join us again on the podcast. This is great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here once again. It's a beautiful day here in Boston after eight rainy days, so it, it's I a know. delight all the way around. Um, today, we are going to speak about something that is referred to as confirmation bias, and I'm going to let you take it away. I'm going to let you explain what it is and all that good stuff. Thank you, Diane. Well, you know, confirmation bias is a really fancy way of talking about um, people's tendency to interpret new information as confirmation of their own beliefs or their own theories about things. Um, and as human beings, we do this every day, all day on big things and little things. So for example, you might meet somebody and they'll give you some information about themselves. And of course you might assess their, the way that they're speaking, if they have an accent, um, either regional or otherwise, um, what they tell you they do for work. Um, and we, we start to fill in the blanks about what we don't know about them. And this is based upon just our, you know, our, our walk through life. Um, and, and this is, of course, very relevant today, for example, politically, as people have become very polarized in their political views, and um, people attempt to support those political views by finding other people to confirm what it is that they believe in. Um, so the reason that this is important is not only does this affect people as individuals, but it also affects people professionally um, in their work. And of course, you know that I'm a criminal defense attorney and in my experience, um, and there have been studies to support this, that confirmation bias can be particularly tricky um, if that confirmation bias, and it often does, exists in law enforcement investigation. Um, so I'm sure that many of your listeners have experienced either reading newspapers, listening to media, watching the proliferation of um, criminal investigation shows, serial killer shows on TV, 
um, and on podcasts and at Netflix, et cetera, et cetera, as to how cases are developed um, from an investigation purpose. And it's important to know that not only are police officers human beings, but they're also professional investigators or they should be professional investigators. Um, and the difficulty comes when an investigation, a, a police officer develops a theory of the case. Um, and rather than investigate that theory, they build upon that theory. And you're probably wondering, Diane, why is this important? Because when an investigator, and I use the word investigator as a police officer, begins to develop their case, um, often because of this, this issue of confirmation bias, which hmm. is a human factor, yeah. rather than investigate the case with an open mind, they tend to build upon their theory, often either eliminating, outright eliminating um, or muddying pieces of evidence or information that come to them that don't fit the case. And this is why we have um, a pretty sad but healthy number of wrongful convictions in this country because investigators, rather than evaluating other potential theories of the case or using information that comes to them that is inconsistent with their theory and then rejecting it, they avoid it or they ignore it or sometimes they outright suppress it um, to make sure that their theory remains intact. And well, Diana, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna swing this back to you because as an esteemed court reporter for many years, listening to cases unfold um, as because of course the, the Commonwealth, the, the prosecution um, has the first crack bite at the apple, you will say, and listening to witnesses testify. And of course, you know what their theory of the case is at that point, you're probably going, how did they come upon this guy, right? And that's how that happens, right? Well, you know, right out of the gate when you're talking and I'm listening to this, I'm saying to myself, what comes to mind is why? Are they subconsciously doing it and they don't realize they're doing it? Is it intentional? Because it'll be easier that way to solve the case and go to the next one and get a conviction? I don't know. All excellent questions, Diane. And I don't think that there's a straightforward answer. Um, I think that part of it um, involves, um, of course, just human behavior as we all have chores to do with our within our professional responsibilities. Of course, if we can make a task easier for ourselves, then we will. Um, and it's obviously easier to build a case with evidence, even if it conflicts with your case, than to investigate a case, um, obtain information and then discard it and then start again, because that's much harder. Um, I'm sure there are political pressures involved within law enforcement ranks in that they all essentially support each other. So it may be difficult when a detective or an investigator um, accumulates evidence um, and is supported by others to say, no, we're wrong, let's start again. So there are probably a number of different um, issues that come to bear when we wonder why this happens. Can I share with you an observation I had um, for many years in that courtroom 
listening yes. to cases. And remember now, for the predominant, you know, chunk of my career, I was in Superior Court where they bring out the big, I mean, it's life felonies. They're not little, you know, shoplifting. They're big. They're murders. They're violent rapes. They're, you know, you know what we get in the Superior Court. So yeah. when I look at it and I look at the DA, I wonder, they're left. They weren't there. They didn't see the crime, nor did the police. So the DA is handed all this evidence from the investigators. They can only go with what they have, right? Right. Generally speaking, that's so, correct. But I do know, I've heard DAs over the years, years say when there's a homicide, they go right out ASAP to the scene of the murder. So they are hands-on to some extent. But they're, they, they're only as good as what they, in the, you know, they only have what the police give them and the lab gives them back. So it's a tough thing. Right. Well, you know, the decision as to when and how to prosecute a case is very, very different from the investigative process or the development or the building yes. of the case at the outset. Yes. And so while prosecutors, particularly in major felony cases, such as murders and home invasions and armed robberies, are typically involved hands-on at the onset of the investigation um, and, and might certainly ask questions um, they, they don't do the actual investigation. They may sit in on interviews from right. time to time, but they don't lead the investigation. And so it's the typical, the local police department or maybe a joint task force between local um, and state police, sometimes even federal agencies that might be involved. Um, but typically the designated um, law enforcement group that is sort of the principle in doing the investigation, they'll assign the tasks to others or they're the ones who essentially are gonna be developing the case as they want to, to develop it. So um, there, there's really a, a difference between what the prosecution can do. Of course, they have charging authority at the end of the day if they're gonna indict a case, but, um, but the development of the case exists within local police departments. No, I don't think a lot of people know, but just from me sitting there, like my brother one time, one of my brothers, he saw like a pretrial um, thing and he said, what's all this? I said, he thought that you just show up one day and fight out the case. Like, he, you know, as a layperson, he didn't know how many steps and how many hearings there are before something is in a posture to be tried. And it's really... I always say, I analogize it to like looking in a cookbook to cook something. You can't skip any step. You have to follow the, follow the rules or it doesn't come out right. But to me, I've seen cases morph unbelievably from what is indicted and what's going forward. And by the time we have motions to suppress and this and that, the case looks markedly different when it goes into a trial session. Do you agree? I, I agree, and that's an excellent point. But the irony, and I come back to my the the the, the subject matter that we're discussing, confirmation bias. Yes. Is that regardless of how the case might develop in terms of new evidence that might come up, rarely do prosecutors dismiss cases. 
um, when when they should. Um, and you know, I, I doubt that you know I would get much disagreement on this. But by and large, prosecutors would rather let a case go to its natural conclusion, even that's a, a not guilty or an acquittal, than to dismiss a case. I'll give you a great example. This is probably going to shock your listeners. Right. I had a, a case very early on. This was a district court case. And my client was sitting with a female friend um, and her boyfriend. And um, she and my client at the time was this tiny, skinny guy, maybe 110 pounds soaking wet. And her boyfriend was this very developed, um, muscled man. And she called the police um, and she was injured. And she claimed that my client had um, had punched her in the face. Um, and while you know you would look at my client and you would look at the boyfriend and he would be the logical person that one would conclude would have done the um, the assault, um, my client was charged with assault and battery. And subsequent to that, so the case proceeded, as you pointed out, um, in its initial pretrial stages. And approximately about two months before the trial, the um, the defendant's boyfriend was arrested on um, on essentially a case that ultimately was indicted with um, beating, feloniously beating the same girlfriend. Um, and she was hospitalized, she was gravely injured. Ultimately, the case was indicted. And there was a, what we call a dangerousness hearing um, involving whether or not the boyfriend should be detained. And at that hearing, she testified that her boyfriend had engaged in months of um, acts of domestic violence, violence that he had abused her, and including the act that was the predicate for what my client had been charged. And she testified under oath on the stand that she had lied to police officers when they, you know, they they um, they interviewed her, and she said she lied because she was afraid of her boyfriend. And the prosecutor used her testimony as a basis to get a detention order for the boyfriend. Um, and so you're probably thinking, as I'm sure your listeners will thinking, well, surely they dismissed the case against my client, but you and your listeners would be wrong. They actually prosecuted it through a trial um, and sort of had this duality of belief. They said, well, we did use this victim's statements to our benefit to get a detention order on the boyfriend, but we don't know, we weren't there. And so rather than dismiss the case, where again, the evidence seemed to accumulate against the prosecutor's case, they still went forward with a jury trial. Of course, my client was acquitted, but the point is why, right? I just have a question based on criminal profiling, which is a very effective tool in in catching the bad guys. Uh, how do we differentiate between profiling, which is professionally administered, and what we're talking about here, uh, confirmation bias? Well, to, that's a great question, Jordan. And to be honest, um, there's a very, very fine, often muddled line between the two. So I'll give you an example. Um, Boston maintains what they call a gang database. And the gang database is essentially accumulation of interviews, um, 
you know, stop and frisks, conversations with different people who provide information to law enforcement, some of which might be accurate and some of which might not be to make a determination as to whether an individual um, is deemed inclusive in this gang database. And so, of course, when you talk about profiling, that's exactly what profiling is, um, is the information that the investigators accumulate accurate that would warrant the basis of that person being included in the profile? Maybe, but maybe not. Um, but nonetheless, this is a powerful tool that law enforcement uses, wields sometimes wrongly to secure convictions or to persuade a judge to hold an individual without bail um, based upon, for example, this profiling. And so sometimes it's accurate for sure. Um, sometimes it has a foundation that is difficult to be challenged, but oftentimes the reverse is true. Aviva, when you're speaking of that, because I've seen in court cases when they'll say, not, not in front of the jury, but they'll, they'll have like charts up and they'll know who the gang members are. And the, they, is that legal to do that? Um, you know, first of all, all of the whether or not the evidence is admissible is all vetted pre through pretrial motions or or requests through the court to determine in advance of trial whether or not it fits some exception to, to the hearsay rule, for example. Um, but again, it, it really goes back to Jordan's very thoughtful question that, um, you know, a lot of convictions are secured based upon, for example, um, investigation in profiling, um, and that goes back again to a confirmation bias. So once an individual is included, for example, in this gang database, then other information that's accumulated, for example, um, conversations with other individuals that might support this, this inclusion, even though that information might ultimately be determined to be false, the police officer who's doing that investigation is going to tend to believe the, the source of his investigation because he or she is trying to develop this profile. And so, again, this goes back to whether or, you know, and it is to the benefit of law enforcement to enhance the information in the profile. Because, of course, if they can enhance the information in the profile, then they're more likely to persuade a judge or a jury that this individual is indeed a gang member um, to whatever end they need to, to do so, to secure a conviction, to get that person detained or a, a high bail pending trial. And so it, it sort of feeds into itself. Wow. You know, I think this idea of confirmation bias, I think it's inherent in everyone to a point, like you want, people to see things, not just in the, the legal arena, but don't you think in, in everyday life, people fall prey to that? Absolutely. Of course they do. I mean, and, and um, it's part of the human condition. We do it every day in little steps, um, sometimes big steps, but, um, and, you know, and unfortunately, sometimes that causes us to make decisions um, or engage in communications that aren't particularly productive. Um, but it's dangerous, more dangerous, um, when it involves law enforcement because they have, you know, they, they have charging consequences to their investigation. 
and they could alter somebody's life forever with the manner in which they investigate cases. And that's how we get wrongful convictions is because law enforcement ignores, sometimes outright suppresses information that they receive, evidence that they receive that's completely contrary to the theory of the case that they develop. And it's obviously dangerous. People have died for that. People have been executed for that. What can be done about it in Um, your eyes, in your view? Well, um, that's a great question. And I think it's going to take a sea change of um, attitude and training on the part of law enforcement to remain open to truly investigating a case as opposed to building a case. Um, and again, I, I, and I, I use those two terms before, but they're so important because when you build a case, you have a theory that you are locked into and everything that you do, all those building blocks that you do, you wanna make that case higher and taller and more stronger. So you're building that foundation. And if you find a piece of evidence that's inconsistent with the case that you're building, you tend to exclude it sometimes at your peril or certainly at the peril of the person you're looking to prosecute. If you investigate a case, then you remain open to possibilities that what might seem to be the logical conclusion or the logical theory to um, to focus on um, might you know m- might be um, you know one you might want to reconsider that theory. Wow, it's it's mind boggling that you know it, it, I shouldn't be surprised, but you know I've never I was never even aware of that till you brought this theory to light this morning when we were speaking about it. You know, when we were just deciding what topic we were going to discuss today. And that, that to me is such a tantamount problem. It's disturbing on many levels. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's, it's, it's truly a, a frightening phenomena that really has never been adequately addressed um, or, you know, or certainly really meaningfully probed, let's put it that way. Um, and I think it's incumbent upon all of us to recognize the problem, certainly, certainly for law enforcement. I mean, we want to um, encourage respect for our law enforcement personnel, um, and we have to believe that the job that they do is truly unbiased. Um, and we need to, um, you know, we, we need to really pay a close attention to it. I mean, if you look at nothing else, look at the recent Derek Chauvin conviction. Um, And it is shocking to look at the original police statement that was released. And they basically said that that George Floyd had a medical event, um, that he was being disruptive. He had a medical event at the time of his arrest and he subsequently died. That's what the original statement said. And of course we know that that's absolutely not true, that this, man was murdered, you know, he was essentially placed under the knee of law enforcement for nearly nine minutes. Um, It's a far cry from the way that it was characterized at the outset. Um, And again, if you read, if you read that original statement of what happened to George Floyd, you'd make your own conclusions about what happened. You'd think that he was, you know, he was being disruptive. He got into the, the police car 
and had a heart attack. And that's obviously not what happened. And so, again, it's important because as a community, um, as civilians, we listen to the information provided to us. Um, and then, of course, many of us are conditioned to believe in law enforcement. And so we, we make those, take those little baby steps towards other conclusions, filling out the bigger picture, if you will. You know, I just have to comment here that there still are many cops that try to do the right thing. And I tip my hat to them because we need police. It can't be a police list. I just think that we need it would be anarchy in the streets if we it's so important to have a police force. But I think the whole thing is just so out of whack that it has to be complete as they're trying to just revamp the whole the whole thing. And there are so many police officers that are wonderful and they're upstanding. But you know what I think a big change in this, this theory in, in a positive way are the, like when we started to get cell phones and everyone started to be able to video things, Johnny on the spot, just if something was going down, someone would turn on their iPhone or whatever and make a movie about it. And that is tremendous to help the cause. And there are cameras now after 9-11 on every corner of every building. And that wasn't the case years ago. So, I, go ahead, Diane. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. No, not at all. I'm just saying, don't you think that that's a step in the right direction? Absolutely. Um, and I just want to make it clear to your listeners that I'm by, I, I, I'm by no means trying to denigrate the, the wonderful work that many police officers do. There are many um, very um, honorable and hardworking police officers that I've had the pleasure to interact with, um, cross-examine, um, everybody's doing their job. Um, I'm, I'm merely pointing out what is essentially a, a problem in law enforcement investigation that's gone on for years. And I, it's, it's wonderful that we now have the ability for civilians to effectively participate in a way in the investigation of, of um, of crimes as they unfold. But even if there's one incident of confirmation bias, it's one too many. And that's Absolutely. the problem. And it doesn't sound like it's a rare thing. It sounds like it's common. It is common. It's, it's very common. Um, I'll give you another case in point is that I was um, representing a defendant who was charged with possession of a firearm. This was a part of this big um, multi-co-defendant investigation. And my client had been allegedly a gang member and he was in this database. And so of course, um, police officers investigating um, conduct with respect to a number of these individuals, um, basically had they had wiretapped um, the phone, my client's phone among others. And they heard my client talking about um, essentially using or, or being involved with what's called a side piece. And it's a slang word. Um, and police officers believed based upon conclusions about my client. Again, biases that they had about his um, previous involvement um, in crimes that he was looking to sell a, sell a gun. Um, and they interpreted the conversations, this word side piece as a gun. But of course, side piece in common slang can mean lots of things. 
It could mean a female, you know, a, a side girlfriend. It could mean a car. Um, it could mean a whole host of other things. But because they wanted to believe that my client was in possession, unlawful possession of a firearm, that investigator, without anything more, um, chose to interpret the word side piece in a way that was favorable to their theory. And so they stopped my client and they arrested him. Um, and there was a passenger in the car who did have a gun, but my client didn't. They charged my client anyway with unlawful possession of a firearm. Um, and the detective on the stand um, told the jury that the, side, the word side piece meant in his opinion, a gun. Um, and clearly the jury did not believe him and they acquitted my client within the space of an hour allowing for lunch. Um, but it, you know, again, it goes to show that the, the, you know, the detective in that particular case was determined to have my client prosecuted for an unlawful possession of a firearm and decided to essentially um, misinterpret a significant piece of evidence so that it would conform with his theory of the case. You know, I know it went without saying that you I, I please forgive me if you if you thought that I in any way, you know, was saying that you didn't think there were wonderful, upstanding police officers. I you know, but we both know there's a lot of shenanigans that goes on, you know, with the police. Look, at it's shameful right now what's in the press. I mean, what's happened, the turn of events with Sean Ellis. And it just goes on and on. And I mean, not too long ago, you know, X years ago, 20 years ago with that Chuck Stewart and, and Willie Bennett, that was a disgrace. And I'm, it's shameful that they plucked him out of the crowd and tried to pin on him something he had nothing to do with. Nothing. So, you know, it's a long storied past and it's, it's not it's not pretty. This sounds like it's systemic and it, it, it needs to really be addressed. Yeah, systemic is an excellent word for what what you know what exists, um, and you know, and I, and no, I did not take offense at all. But I want to make it clear that there are excellent police officers who I think attempted to consciously consciously disengage from confirmation bias. But it's hard because we all do it, um, and it's it's part of the human fabric. And so, um, you know, in particular particularly involving law enforcement investigation, which is largely subjective. Um, and so, yes, there's forensic science, but that only goes so far in many of these investigations. And even forensic science can be flawed so, um, or, or inaccurate. So, um, again, this, I'm, I'm merely bringing this to your attention and to your listeners' attention because it's 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 a it's a serious problem in law enforcement investigation, and we can do better. Jordan, as a lay person who has not been in the, you know, you've not been in the legal arena, so to speak, daily, like you know, as a lawyer or sitting in a courthouse every day. When you're listening to this, what are your thoughts on this? Do you have anything that comes jumps out at you? Well, the only thought I have is how difficult it has to be for those in the legal system to wade through all this. 
when one thinks of uh, you know someone's prior record and all that's brought to bear at circumstantial. Final question is, is the judge the last line of defense if the attorney is not having any luck convincing anyone else? What role does the judge have in these cases? Well, the judge has a role in evaluating from a legal perspective what evidence can come in before a jury. Um, and so uh, ultimately the jury is the fact finder um, in in in, jury, in trials, jury trials, the judge can be, but generally it's the jury, the the jury who decides the facts. But the jury decides the facts um, based upon what evidence is admissible. And if a judge, and so if a judge decides, for example, that a defendant's prior conviction should come in um, under a certain legal theory, then obviously that has an, a tr- an emotional impact on the way that a jury might decide guilt or innocence or lack of guilt, I should say. Um, and so that's a good question. Um, the judge, in a sense, is the last line of defense in terms of either admitting or excluding um, evidence that can be very inflammatory, prejudicial against um, a defendant. Well, it's an interesting concept, and it's a lot to digest and a lot to think about. And I can't thank you enough for having come on today and shared this with us. It's enlightening to me. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure, as always. Um, I appreciate the engagement. The the questions were excellent. Um, And I look forward to doing it again sometime, if you'll have me back. Absolutely. I, you know what? You're one of the bright spots in this whole po- podcast thing. I love when you come on. It's just terrific. Oh, thank I you. Always, you know, I always leave happy after I see you. Thank you, Diane. Feeling is mutual. Oh, you know? I mean it. it. It's great. It's all good. Thank you, Aviva. This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice. Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse, from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.